Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Nancy Pelosi departs Taiwan, and the fallout from her misadventure is just beginning. Also, China is encircling Taiwan, and many fear that a military conflict may be in the offing. Joining us now to discuss this and more, KJ No. KJ is a peace activist, writer, teacher, and friend of the show. KJ, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start here. Something that is not being reported much in the Western press. I read an article yesterday that said in July, the government of Taiwan actually tried to dissuade Nancy Pelosi, tried to pull back their invitation, but she insisted on it saying this would be historic. And now we have a Yahoo News article. Even the people of Taiwan say Pelosi is just causing trouble and should have sacrificed her overhyped trip KJ, no. Yes, absolutely. There is massive opposition to her trip in Taiwan because they know the trouble it will cause and is causing. And yes, uh, apparently, you know, there were attempts to dissuade her from coming, but she insisted. And also, we know that, you know, there were bomb threats at the airport where she was supposed to land. There were massive protests outside her hotel not seen in the mainstream press, but if you do a little search, you can see images of uh, people on Taiwan, you know, stamping on the American flag, you know, calling her a witch, ugly American leave, uh, etc. So, you know, uh, this is uh, all around. Uh, Essentially, uh, the Taiwanese people don't want uh, her there. They didn't want her there. And they've said, you know, the best thing that she can do for Taiwan, if she actually cares about us, is to skip visiting us. Of course, she didn't. It's all about her, and it's all about a larger geostrategic strategy of seeing if they can prod and proke uh, China uh, and salami slice the one China principle. So what's the real nature of the massive opposition? Is it along party lines, or is it more nationalist in nature? And what I mean by nationalist in nature is, are there disparate political factions that are kind of forgetting their differences and rallying around the fact that they're all Taiwanese in opposition to Nancy Pelosi. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, I I don't think we have, you know, enough granular information to know exactly uh, who was protesting and how. I didn't see identification. But we know that, you know, there is what we call a pan-blue coalition. And this is a coalition of about six different parties uh, and they believe uh, that uh, they favor uh, good relations with uh, mainland China. The DPP represents what is called a pan-green coalition. These are the separatists, and these are essentially, uh, you know, uh, the, these are separatists that have been uh, encouraged and essentially, uh, you know, promoted by the United States. These are the ones that are currently have power, but, you know, uh, they certainly don't represent the majority of thinking in uh, on Taiwan Island. And 70 percent of the Taiwanese want simply the status quo. They do not want to uh, change anything, and they certainly don't want to become U.S. cannon fodder. 
Which brings us to our next article. China is conducting its largest military drills around Taiwan in decades in response to a visit to the island by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The PLA said it will conduct a series of military operations surrounding Taiwan and announced strong military responses were underway. There are speculation there could be a military operation, and there's some saying that China is looking a little bit further down the road and may not. Your thoughts on what's going on? Well, I mean, whatever China does, it is certainly a show of force. And I do not think that the U.S. or Pelosi anticipated any of this. They all said, well, you know, it's all bluster. It's all just, you know, words. But certainly the Chinese signaled that they were very, very serious about this, that this was, uh, you know, a serious crossing of red lines. And they were willing to take very, very strong actions. Uh, I think that what the U.S. may have been uh, thinking of, uh, they were thinking tactically, which is to say that they see Taiwan as a pawn on the seventh row of the chessboard. When Pelosi went there, they just moved to the eighth, and they expected uh, China to react, uh, you know, and take it out, which would then subject it to a counter. And this is this kind of thinking has largely been mapped out in. Uh, uh, Elbridge Colby's strategy of denial, where he says that essentially the United States needs to trigger war uh, with China over Taiwan, but to trigger in a way such that China is exposed and delegitimated. And he refers to this as a strategy of denial using a binding tactic that uses allies to fight as proxies. Um, clearly, the Chinese didn't take the bait, and instead they switched the game. That is to say, they stopped playing chess, or they didn't play chess. And as I said before, uh, they have been playing Go. Go is not a tactical game like chess. It's a strategic game. It's a long-term strategic game. And what they did was essentially they encircled uh, and surrounded Taiwan Island with these six uh, military uh, uh, exercises uh, from the north to south the southeast, the southwest, the northeast, the northwest, and essentially creating, you know, kind of this complete blockade. And in Go, when you surround a stone or when you get close to it, it's considered to be uh, Atari, uh, what is considered a dead stone, and you remove it at will. I think the Chinese will uh, take their time and decide when they want to act. But what they've done is they've shown that they can surround, they've shown power, uh, they've set up the conditions. Essentially, they've set up in Go what is called an Atari situation, uh, a piece that is already, it, it, which is a dead, dead man walking. You mentioned that one of the objectives of all of this by the United States could be to expose China. But to expose China as what? Because I'm still really at a loss to try to identify what rational purpose could come from this provocation? And the other thing I'm wondering now, as China has surrounded Taiwan, is President Tsai saying to Joe Biden, hey, Joe, Nancy's gone. I'm now sitting here surrounded by the Chinese Navy. What the heck are you going to do? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to point out is that, you know, she was somebody who asked for it. I mean, her whole career has been a quizzling uh, to the United States. So, you know, I think whatever uh, stew that she's marinating in is something that, you know, she has been, uh, you know, 
uh, cooking for herself. Uh, regarding uh, this whole notion of but hold on, KJ. I don't really ask that question out of concern for her. I ask the question out of looking at what has now developed. Mm-hmm. And Nancy's gone. Her country is surrounded. Mm-hmm. And the United States is, is it's almost like a Ukraine situation. It's similar. I mean, we don't know if it will directly uh, go into kinetic. You know, the, the encirclement is supposed to last only three days. But we'll see. We don't know. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns here. I mean, what we do see is that the United States is on its bicycle backpedaling and apologizing. I mean, if you, uh, uh, you know, note, you can see Kirby, you know, is going to extreme pains to try to convince the Chinese that, oh, you know, we haven't done anything against the one China policy. There is no contradiction. It reminds me of like, you know, a teenager who, you know, who drives the family car into a tree and then says, he wasn't driving because he was texting at the time. I mean, this kind of juvenile, ex, you know, making excuses. But I think the U.S. is trying to backpedal a little bit. We see in the press, you know, even before and still after that, you know, uh, uh, Biden has made a mess and he needs to do damage control right now. So we'll see if they can de-escalate and get out of this. But I think the Chinese have pounced on this maneuver and as I said, they use it to uh, do a kind of circling movement, uh, you know, in, in Go. Uh, it's this uh, circling movement that takes out, you know, the, uh, the offending piece. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that regarding your question is what it is trying to expose. Eldridge Colby is, you know, one of the deep state elites, and he believes or he uh, asserts that China is an expansionist power and that the first stepping stone will be Taiwan, and then it will be dominoes all the way down all across the world. This is absurd. China is not expansionist uh, regarding Taiwan. Taiwan is China's territory. It was taken, stolen by Japan, kept by the U.S., and then given to the losing party in a civil war to the fascist uh, Kuomintang, And the U.S. has essentially been the guarantor of Taiwan's existence since 1949. The Chinese don't want that because, first, it's a historically unresolved issue. It's a matter of territorial integrity. But also, it's, you know, it's a strategic threat because it's so close to the Chinese territory. And so, you know, Colby and I think, uh, you know, U.S. elite class thinking uh, is that, you know, China is quote-unquote, expansionist. This is the pretext. But, of course, we know ultimately is China does not pose any threat to the United States except the threat of a good example and the possibility of breaking out of the neo, neoliberal, neocolonial extractive paradigm where the U.S. is the apex predator sucking all the countries of the world dry. China broke that mold. There are only four countries that have escaped uh, out of colonialism uh, into, into a developed status. Uh, China is the fifth, and it did it on its own terms, as opposed to, say, for example, South Korea, which was raised in a hothouse and, you know, raised essentially as a show pony. So China, when it, uh, by escaping, it creates uh, a center of gravity that allows the other countries of the periphery to attain their own escape velocity. And that creates uh, effectively a multipolar world. 
the U.S. has to stop that because it needs to continue to extract from uh, the rest of the world uh, it, because it has a parasitic relationship with it. That's the threat. And uh, there's nothing to expose there. You know, it's, 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 just, uh, it's just the nature of the global order, which is shifting in tectonic ways. I also think that China, in looking at the long run, could do things such as there's certain allies that we're going to strengthen. There's certain allies that in the U.S.'s area of operation, say, sphere of influence in South America, that they could strengthen in Africa, that what they could look at is strengthening allies, that there are other things that they could do that the U.S. may not say, ah, that's nothing, that's a little, you know, small move, but a large set of moves with other allies and other countries to eventually, in the long run, created a dynamic that's basically unstoppable. Two minutes. You're absolutely correct. And this is the go strategy that I'm talking about. You get small incremental movements that are small linking up of uh, with other pieces, and then you create something which cannot be removed, which is invincible. Certainly, they're doing it all over Latin America, over Africa, over Asia. Uh, you know, primary vehicle of this is the Belt and Road. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, ultimately, uh, this will be successful. The U.S. cannot compete with this. It's trying. The U.S. is is working very much in a militaristic fashion. You know, currently, as we speak, you know, the three large-scale exercises, uh, exercise uh, Garuda, the RIMPAC, and the Korean-U.S. military exercises. These are all very belligerent, dangerous, and they're, uh, uh, you know, uh, rehearsing um, interoperability for war against China. But I don't think it's going to work. Already we see some of the effects that President Yoon Seok-yeol of South Korea is refusing to meet with Nancy Pelosi when Pelosi lands in Korea. So I think he's seen the writing on the wall, and he is following uh, the counsel of, uh, you know, of his better angels. Which is surprising because he was a super hawk, <laughs> but he's uh, crazy. Uh, apparently not a stupid super hawk. K.J. No is a peace activist. He's a writer and a teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Russian diplomats are making it clear that they support China in this Taiwan crisis. Also, Russia is no longer in the, quote, age of cooperation with the West. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, a historian, and a researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. In Tass' article today, we see a story that says, quote, Russia has no grounds to refuse to help China in case of an armed conflict in Taiwan. Vladimir Zhabarov, first deputy chairman of the International Committee of Russia's Federation Council or Upper Parliament House, said. Uh, your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, I think we should all be on pins and needles, and I mean that quite seriously. I say that for a number of reasons. Uh, number one... What we're going through now bears an eerie resemblance, I'm afraid to say, to what erupted in the Balkans circa August 1914 when the fuse was lit that led to World War I. Now, it appeared that it was just a local crisis, 
that is a crisis involving the Austro-Hungarian Empire and perhaps the Serbs. But quickly, it spread around the world. And as you know, many black Americans in particular, the Harlem Hellfighters, fought and lost their lives as a result of this conflict. And it may not be accidental that that happened in August, because in August, I think that there is oftentimes a perception in the imperialist countries that people are asleep, people are on a vacation, that they can sneak a fastball on the outside corner. And that oftentimes proves to be disastrous, as it did in August 1914. And then we know that U.S. imperialism is undergoing a bout of what the Yale historian Paul Kennedy called in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, imperial overstretch. That is to say, in his study of previous empires before the rise of the U.S. empire, it seemed that they inevitably become overextended because they have their fingers in so many different pies. And certainly that's the case for U.S. imperialism, which is now funding the Ukrainian war, that is to say the war against Russia that's now unfolding, that now has dispatched Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, which has outraged and inflamed the People's Republic of China, it could lead to disastrous consequences. You probably already know that for the first time in more than a decade, Chinese purchases, the People's Bank of China purchases of U.S. Treasury bills, which are basically loans to the United States government for everything from the Pentagon to the post office, have fallen below a trillion dollars. I expect China to buy less agricultural commodities from the United States farm belt. Keep in mind as well that Taiwan is heavily dependent on the Chinese economy to stay afloat. And in the next day or two, there will be these military exercises surrounding Taiwan, uh, which could uh, easily uh, head south. And as we speak, there are military exercises around Indonesia involving Japan, Australia, and the United States, clearly aimed at China. Recall that it was in uh, 1965 that you had this bloody coup in Indonesia, the largest, by some measures, predominantly a Muslim country on planet Earth, uh, that led to pogrom against the Chinese population of Indonesia, which basically controls the economy. Uh, I dare say that if that were to happen again as a result of a miscalculation, it would be Katie Barr at the door. And so I would urge the hotheads in Washington to cool down, that they're involved in a classical uh, overstretch, not only with regard to Ukraine and Asia, but keep in mind the latest news from Vienna is that uh, the talks on nuclear issues with Iran are resuming. Robert Malley, the chief U.S. negotiator, is jetting to Austria as we speak. I hope and I trust that's an indication that the United States would not like to fight a three-front war, despite Mr. Biden's recent trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, where clearly on the table was conflict with Iran. I hope that this jetting to Vienna, uh, Mr. Uh, Mali, uh, represents some sort of ratcheting down of tensions. But I think, and I fear to say, 
that U.S. imperialism may feel that time is running out, that they cannot compete with China economically or financially. China is in the process of outstripping the United States in terms of producing computer chips, which, of course, are a major export from Taiwan. And if China puts a blockade on Taiwan, uh, it would severely hamper the United States' ability to use computer chips for automobiles. In fact, we just received reports that a number of auto plants in Michigan have shut down because of a dearth of computer chips. And so this situation that we're facing globally is rapidly spinning out of control. And I trust and I hope that we will not have to relive the title of a now celebrated book, The Guns of August. What do you make of the language by Vladimir Zabarov? He says, in principle, there is nothing impossible. We understand that sometimes it is a game of chance and a conflict may grow into a big war. But I think that China is behaving very cautiously in this sense, in a very restrained manner, but continues to build up its defense potential. And then he goes on to say that basically after Pelosi leaving Taiwan and that China and Russia are moving closer together, he says, because it will be difficult for China to confront the United States without Russia's support. Uh, your thoughts, because to me, that's very clear, very direct, and not so much diplomatic as it is just direct and to the point. Well, I agree with your analysis. However, my reading tells me that of 19 tabletop exercises involving a Chinese conflict with U.S. forces, China has triumphed 19 consecutive times. So I think that our Russian friend may be underestimating the prowess of the Chinese military. And I hope that all sides, particularly the U.S. side, is taking into uh, to account that a lot of the pressure that's coming for China to respond is coming from below. It's not as if the Chinese Communist Party is leaving the masses around by the nose. That is to say, it's deeply felt in China, this idea of a century of humiliation. That is to say, from the 1840s to the triumph of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, when the European powers, led by Britain in the first instance, but also including the United States, walked all over China, used it basically as a doormat, and there is a thirst, not necessarily for revenge, but some sort of acknowledgement of that century of humiliation and certainly not the igniting of a new century of humiliation, which brings us to Speaker Pelosi, a veteran politician. However, I do not think you can understand her misadventure without looking at her congressional district, which covers most of San Francisco one of the largest Asian-American populations in a congressional district, over 30%, mostly Chinese-American. And like the Cuban-American population in South Florida, or the Venezuelan or Nicaraguan-American population in Florida as a whole, the Chinese-American population basically are refugees from revolutionary unrest, in this case in Asia, and they are the ones who are driving uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, into this cul-de-sac, which she recently entered. And I would be remiss if I failed to mention 
uh, Congressman Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, a black American who leads the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I hope you saw the footage of he and Nancy Pelosi uh, leaving the plane yesterday. I thought that Gregory Meeks was, was uh, Marcel Morceau, that he was some sort of mind. <laughs> if Nancy Pelosi would step to the left, he would step to the left. Nancy Pelosi would turn and wave, he would stand, turn and wave. I was trying to say, is, is it because he doesn't want to be mistaken for her security and be asked to move away from her? Or is it because he's just a robot uh, letting Nancy Pelosi lead him around by the nose and basically selling out the interests? of this predominantly black district in Southeast Queens, New York. Here's another article in RT. Cooperation with the West is over. Russia's decades-long attempt to integrate with the West is not only over, but even cooperation is now off the cards. A senior strategist in Moscow has warned. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, this may be a turning point in world history. I think that it is clear that the North Atlantic countries have miscalculated. The Germans in particular the fourth largest economy on planet Earth, the second largest, most populous nation in Europe, faces the grim prospect of having their citizenry freeze in the dark within a few months. We already hear stories from Hanover, Germany, about people being asked to take showers together or to take cold showers. This is only the beginning of a precipitous decline. And then the Green Foreign Minister of Germany, Annalena Baerbock, basically had the audacity to announce that Germany would stand by Taiwan if Taiwan had a confrontation with uh, China. Now, you talk about selling whoop tickets. I mean, Germany can hardly send weapons to neighboring Ukraine. So how are they going to intervene thousands of miles away in Taiwan? Uh, She is clearly out over her skis. I'd like to have something of what she's been smoking. What about this discussion now that cooperation with the West is over and Moscow only needs, quote unquote, transactional deals with Western states? That to me shows a real dramatic shift in mindset on the Russian side of the equation. It certainly is. And it's congruent with what I said a moment or two or so about Germany. That is to say, that you saw the uh, ditching of the deal on the International Space Station between Russia and the United States of America. I dare say that uh, this is only the beginning of tensions of being ratcheted up between the largest nuclear powers, speaking of Russia, and the number two nation, speaking of Germany. You saw the meeting at the United Nations the other day with Secretary General Antonio Guterres warning humanity that we're just a banana peel away from slipping into some sort of nuclear holocaust that could spell the doom of humanity, let us hope that he is proven wrong. Well, lastly, there's an article, U.S. wants to demonstrate its impunity through its actions in Taiwan. So the Russians are basically saying, hey, look, they want to show that they can do anything they want, anywhere they want. And if you read what the Chinese are saying, they're saying we're going to take actions and declare the time where the U.S. basically controls the world. We're going to declare that over. So there's a discussion about U.S. hegemony coming to an end. Dr. Horn. Well, I I think that that's a fair prognostication. And let me reference what I said a moment or two ago about the Chinese possibly uh, curtailing, as they promised to do, uh, purchases of U.S. agricultural commodities. They can buy soybeans from Brazil as opposed to Illinois. 
let us uh, also reference the curtailing of Chinese, People's Bank of China of buying Treasury bills from the U.S. Treasury. And let me also warn the Pentagon about the growth of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and led by China and Russia, also including Iran. Already, it's more than a match for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is already overmatched in Ukraine. And I would warn, once again, these hotheads to not overestimate their declining strength. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher, author of many books. You can find them online anywhere books are sold. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Most of Facebook's fact-checking groups are CIA-linked and funded cutouts. Also, a 60 Minutes report on Nicaragua has been outed as a CIA-linked propaganda move. Joining us to discuss this, we have Steve Poikinen. He's a national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. It is great to be here, Garland. Thank you. Well, Steve, I hate to surprise and shock you. I know you have faith that Facebook is trying to keep us safe from disinformation. But Alan McLeod writes on Mint Press News, most of the fact-checking organizations Facebook has partnered with to monitor and regulate information about Ukraine are directly funded by the U.S. government, either through the U.S. embassy or via the notorious National Endowment for Democracy. Steve Poikinen. I, I really am. This was one of the more surprising stories that came across my newsfeed over the last couple of weeks, along with uh, water is wet. <laughs> and uh, and if you walk outside barefoot when it's 130 degrees out, you will burn the bottom of your feet. These amazing earth shattering revelations that have been withheld so long. from No, this I'm. it, it amazes me that it actually takes Freedom of Information Act requests and, and things like that to disclose with proof what everyone has long known and what most of us have already experienced, whether we have a Facebook account or a Twitter account or whatever, which is you you are only allowed to speak within the approved parameters of allowable conversation as determined by either the National Endowment for Democracy or the FBI or the CIA or the Atlantic Council. Um, in these, you know, very either completely spook led or uh, or mostly, you know, spook affiliated organizations are determining what is and isn't reality. To reduce the spread of misinformation and provide more reliable information to users, we partner with independent third party fact checkers globally. Facebook's independent third-party fact-checkers are all certified by the International Fact-Checking Network, a subsidiary of the journalism research organization uh, Pointer Institute, which I think is based in Florida, down in St. Petersburg, is dedicated to bringing together fact-checkers nationwide. Are you familiar with the International Fact-Checking Network? You know, I I was not until I started uh, until I started getting into the Mint Press article. It it sounds like a clearinghouse 
for uh, you know, sensor happy career climbing uh, permanent bureaucrats. And I, d I don't think that these are necessarily the people who have, uh, let's say, the truth's best interest in mind. Wilmer, and I hate to be, you know, hate, hate to be negative. I hate to go negative early. <laughs> um, but uh but recent history has certainly given the overall impression that the truth is something that these uh, the, these men and women are, are very averse to, especially if it conflicts with a good narrative. You know, what's interesting is one of the particular organizations that's involved with them is called Stop Fake. Stop Fake has been connected to and run by at least one of the infamous Chalupa sisters, Alexandra, and I forgot the other names. But here's the other part of it. It has also been intricately connected through numerous investigative research articles to the infamous Prop or not, an organization, a shady group who had an article written about them in the Washington Post that named pretty much, you know, any progressive or any organization that didn't go with the mainstream narrative as Russian propaganda. And you can find numerous stop fake articles where stop fake refers to prop or not and the good work they're doing. But then finally, when prop or not got outed, stop fake attacked prop or not. And then but they said that there was another group called Hamilton 68 dashboard, which is the same type of thing that was doing good work. Oh, might I add another person who used to work for Proper Not, the infamous Dina Jankowitz worked with Stop Fake. But, you know, I repeat myself. At any rate, your thoughts on Stop Fake, Proper Not, Nina Jankowitz being in the midst of helping us on Facebook to be free from disinformation. Man, whoever is running the Proper Not account met me recently on Twitter and I've never tangled with them before. But that was a very fun little exchange. Uh, that resulted in me being blocked, which is usually uh, a sure sign that the person that you were communicating with feels fully in the right about everything that they're doing. We, the, the fact that organizations that have so much influence on who gets elected, like the National Endowment for Democracy, um, also have as side projects or effectively businesses information flow control organizations should at, at some point have previously had people in the streets over the the way that our, our uh, elected officials are seasonally rented, I guess is probably the best way to describe <laughs> the relationship. Um, and, and it didn't we, because for some reason these organizations aren't viewed as either arms of the government or effectively the enforcement division of lobbying groups, <laughs> but but rather they're just seen as kind of these like banal things that, oh, well, you know, there's got to be some fact checkers out there because, you know, there's crazy people on the Internet. Right. And they'll just they'll tell you anything like there was no Russian interference with the election or, in fact, the Steele dossier was largely fabricated or Hunter Biden's laptop is real. <laughs> and these are legitimately things that people got yanked off of Twitter for, yanked off of Facebook for. There was a whole uh, FOIA that I believe the Washington Free Beacon um, published about the CDC's relationship with uh, Facebook and Twitter and whatnot and how their overzealous algorithmic censorship had made it to where even news outlets that they were pushing were getting censored by their own metrics. 
uh, of what made something factual or not factual. Um, so it's they they can't even with their own programming determine what they want to hide from you. And this is a really critical moment in, in human history because there is a literal switch on information for most people and the wrong people are, are standing next to it. Talk about the National Endowment for Democracy and their involvement in all of this, because as Alan McLeod talks about in his piece, he says, why receiving funding from the NED should immediately raise suspicion of any organization is because it was explicitly established by the Reagan administration as a front group for the CIA. But even going back to that Reagan time, folks really don't understand how nefarious the National Endowment for Democracy is, and it's anything but democratic. Well, one hundred percent, you're absolutely correct. What what the any what the NED says they do um, <clears throat> is you know help set up think tanks and organizations and help fund uh, campaigns and institutions in order to of course quote unquote promote uh, democracy and free market. What it effectively is is the um, I guess find the purse for whatever uh, the CIA, the MI6, to a degree Mossad would like to see as the effective change in the world. This is it, where multiple policy producing organizations and think tanks are, are uh, um, I guess, spawned from. Um, and it, there's some of the most nefarious characters on the planet that have been a part of this organization. It, it just gets, I, it's, I'm, I'm trying to put this like not in an alarmist or, you know, weird, but it is a, a fundraising and fund distribution arm for what will become part of policy, both foreign and domestic, at the behest of uh, the intelligence community and the permanent unelected establishment in D.C. There's another article in Covert Action magazine, bogus report on Nicaragua by 60 Minutes exposed as propaganda from CIA-linked National Endowment for Democracy. Well, you know, I watched a 60 Minutes article a while back, and they had the people from Bellingcat on there to talk about, I believe it was some sort of disinformation or whatever the case. Your thoughts on this? Um you know, any time. Well, first of all, anytime you're having somebody on from Bellingcat, you're you are you should be aware that what you're about to hear is a, it's not an original thought. It is a direct parroting of um, intelligence community talking points. I, I think with the with this specifically, it's just another example uh, of trying to, I guess, force feed. A, a completely alternative version of reality onto people. And I'm not sure, maybe you guys can, maybe you guys can correct me. I'm not sure if it's, it's even being that effective anymore. Like I'm seeing numbers of, of mainstream and traditional corporate outlets uh, and even the quote unquote independent ones that look just like them. People are not watching and listening and responding to this stuff in the way that they have been in the past. More and more people are gravitating towards actual independent outlets. And I don't think I think that the reason that we see the overzealousness in the delivery of the propaganda is because it's failing. 
It's interesting in this covert action piece, bogus report on Nicaragua by 60 Minutes, it's an open letter to 60 Minutes, and the author talks about two people that were interviewed are wives of Juan Sebastian Chamorro and Felix Maradiega from wealthy, the elite in Nicaragua, and the uh, Chamorro and Maradiga nonprofits were funded by the NED, founded to do overtly what the CIA has done covertly, and also by other U.S. organizations like the International Republican Institute and the U.S. Agency for International Development. I mean, just calling them out directly and to the point that they don't even hide this anymore. They just do it all out in the in the open. Well, and they feel empowered too because the their it's their it's their captured arm of the media. Like I mean, the article itself even touches on uh, USAID and what they are, what they as opposed to what they claim to be. But these are are directly CIA funded like they're cutout organizations that are put in place specifically to deliver these narratives it uh let's see what's the um according to the article i mean the U- usaid alone put in half a billion dollars into right. uh anti-sandinista uh organizations anti-sandinista campaigns and things like that not profit groups um the uh the rain Right. Responsible action in Nicaragua, which um, turns out is a a basically could have come from the Rand Corporation. It's a a destabilization blueprint. This is what these organizations do. They're not just people who meet to have a, a ridiculously long, bland dinner and raise profits so that some local university can go have a, a life sciences program. Yeah, I'm looking right now and here's an article Bellingcat, Sunday on 60 Minutes. Sunday, Scott Pelley reports on the group of online investigators who are using social media to expose apparent Russian war crimes in Ukraine. They did happen to leave out that these are not independent online investigators, that they are government-sponsored online investigators. But I guess maybe they felt that wasn't important or we could figure it out on our own. We've been talking with Steve Poikinen. He's the national organizer of Action for Assange. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Senate leader Chuck Schumer is pushing legislation that will have significant free speech implications should it pass. Also, the U.S. is approving major arms sales to Middle East Gulf states. Joining us to discuss this and more, Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq and author and writer. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thanks for having me on. Scott's got a great piece. Go to consortiumnews.com, another great site I must recommend, consortiumnews.com. It's called Chuck Schumer's War on Free Speech. The Senate Majority Leader pushed through a 
funding bill that now supports a structure under which U.S. citizens and politicians, including a challenger for his own seat, are being targeted as information terrorists. I must say I was concerned with this issue, and when I read your article, I was outright shocked at how close the United States is, the U.S. government, our own tax dollars come to the country of Ukraine putting out dangerous blacklists against our own citizens. Scott Ritter. Yeah, under, under normal circumstances, one would expect that if, um, first of all, if we found out that a government was targeting American citizens for, um, you know, exercising their First Amendment rights of free speech, that our government would come to our collective defense and say, you know, that's what separates us from scum like you. Um, you know, you oppressors of freedom, you oppressors of liberty. We endorse free speech. Even if the speech is critical of those in power, we believe that that is a constitutional right because it is a constitutional right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is our government has embraced um, these <laughs> the scum in Ukraine as their personification of democracy, freedom, and liberty, and our uh, allocating U.S. taxpayers' dollars appropriated under laws passed by the United States Senate to empower this horrific regime in Ukraine to attack Americans for daring to speak out critically of our policy in Ukraine. And they're, and, and they're talking about labeling people such as myself um, as an information terrorist. Now, terrorism as a very specific word, especially when the United States embraces it. After all, didn't we just fire a couple of Hellfire missiles into a, uh, into a house in Kabul to kill a terrorist? And yet the U.S. government is encouraging Ukraine to use our taxpayers' money to label American citizens as information terrorists and saying that they must be prosecuted as war criminals. Now, you know, I got big shoulders. You want to come after me? Take your shot. Um, but the, the guys that, that I'm worried about are, are lawmakers. For instance, Rand Paul, a senator from Kentucky, who dared say, hey, before we start talking about giving away $40 billion to the singularly most corrupt regime in Europe at a time when Americans are desperately needing that money, might we not want to appoint an inspector general to oversee how this money is being spent, to make sure that it's being spent in a way that the American people would want it to be spent. Chuck Schumer said no, not just no, but hell no. We're passing it through. Amazing that now Rand Paul is on this list of people being singled out because he dared challenge Chuck Schumer's uh, you know, <laughs> desire to give away taxpayer money to a terrorist regime in Ukraine to, that, that then turned around and attacked his political opponent. You know, Chuck Schumer's running for election. He's up on the ballot in November. There's a lady named Diane Sayre who's running against him. Um, wow, it just so happens that right after she was able to overcome uh, New York State electoral laws that were designed to make it impossible for independent candidates to get on the ballot by requiring them to get 45,000 signatures, you know, petitions, uh, she did it, 66,000. Nobody else could. The Republicans tried to get a number of independent uh, platforms on. They couldn't even get a fraction of those signatures. She did it. She's on the ballot. She's challenging Chuck, Chuck Schumer. She's an information terrorist. She's a Russian propagandist. She needs to be prosecuted for war crimes, according to the Ukraine government. Again, acting 
based upon money that has facilitated this information witch hunt targeting American citizens. This is as un-American as it can get. It should be, you know, something that generates outrage across the, 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 the breadth and width of our country by anybody, regardless of your ideological affiliation. You must be opposed to the United States government seeking to suppress free speech, especially free speech that is linked to political campaigns by using a proxy, a foreign proxy, who is funded by U.S. taxpayer dollars. Has there been any response to the open letter that you wrote to Chuck Schumer and your other congressional representatives challenging this very issue? Not yet. I mean, with all due respect, uh, to, to and I give them the benefit of the doubt here. Um, I mailed it last week. And uh, the U.S. postal system being what it is, they may not have gotten it yet. Uh, and if they did, um, you know, hopefully they're going to take some time and, and provide a considered response. And then the U.S. Postal Service has to get it back to me. So I'm not at the point. I, you know, I, I've made the deadline for their response to be August 21st. That is 90 days after they passed this law, public law 117-128. Um, included in that, one of the provisions of this law is that uh, every 90 days, the Secretary of State or the Director of the United States Agency for International Development, who are responsible for, you know, doling out this money, will report back to Congress about the metrics of how this money is being spent. And I, one of the things I demanded in my letter is that they ask questions of whomever shows up to them, wanting to know. Who have we funded? Did we fund this office, this Center for Disinformation? Um, you know, the media on July 14th, when they released this list, they had a roundtable uh, discussion where the, the, the acting head of the center uh, you know, said the people on the list are information terrorists should be prosecuted for war crimes. Um, that that roundtable was organized by a U.S. nonprofit authorized by Congress uh, to, to, you know, use taxpayer money to, you know, bring about free speech. So we know that that conference was organized by an NGO. In attendance were members of the State Department. I want to know who the heck funded them, why they were there, why this was authorized, why they sat silent while American citizens were being attacked. Does this mean that the State Department's in the business of attacking American citizens? I thought they were in the business of protecting. These are the questions I want asked and I want answers demanded. If they fail to do that, you know, then I'll, I'll seek to take it to the next level because my name's on that list. I've been labeled an information terrorist. They say I should be persecuted for war crimes. Like I said, any Ukrainian brave enough to knock on my door and try to effect <laughs> that arrest, it'll be the last thing you do. But I can't sit back idly while the United States funds that kind of suicidal behavior on the part of Ukraine. Well, here's another thing, Scott, and that is, look, Nancy Pelosi went to in her, you know, foolish move to go to Taiwan. I read it cost like $90 million plus. And when you add, they literally sent Air Force carrier groups and all this stuff. I mean, it could have been up in the billions, an unthinkable amount of money this cost to protect Nancy Pelosi from doing something she shouldn't have been doing anyway. Rand Paul is a sitting U.S. senator. 
And we've got people in another country, a country that has literal Nazis as part of the government, saying this guy is a war criminal. And the U.S. State Department is sitting there listening to it. You might as well say in some state or form, green lighting this. Where is the protection for that? Someone could take action based on that. Your thoughts of that comparison, Scott? Someone has taken action. I mean, we know for a fact that when uh, you know, the United States engages in this kind of vitriolic uh, political um, you know, steamrolling uh, through, through the use of the English language, that there are people out there who take umbrage and attack. Hell, they shot a representative in Arizona. They shot a representative in Washington, D.C. Somebody beat up Rand Paul. Yeah. Okay? We know that people act violently in this way. And we also know that in the United States, there is a significant Western Ukrainian diaspora which retains loyalty to Stepan Bandera and this neo-Nazi ideology. Hell, they're just 90 miles down the road from me right now in their summer camps, wearing their brown uniforms, lighting their torches, singing their songs, and bowing to 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 the monument of Bandera here in America. And all it takes is one of them to say, hey, the State Department thinks that Ritter's uh, an information terrorist. Why don't we go up and burn his damn house down? Why don't we go up and terrorize his family? Like I said, it would be the last thing they ever did. But again, I don't want to bring that on my family. I don't want to bring that on my neighbors. I don't want to bring that on my neighborhood. And it shouldn't be brought into this country. This is a country built on the premise of free speech protections. And our government is facilitating the suppression of American free speech by turning over our money to Ukrainian Nazis who have labeled Americans information terrorists and war criminals for doing that which every American should be doing, holding to account those whom we elect a higher office who act in our name when their actions deviate from the beliefs, the standards, the values that we as individuals embrace. There's no such thing as, you know, a collective response in America. We're a nation of individuals. The Constitution is designed to protect individual civil liberties. And yet we're allowing Ukraine to attack individual Americans, some of whom are sitting senators, some of whom are seeking senatorial office for doing that which they must do if they're good American citizens. Speak up. Speak out when they think something wrong is happening. TASS reports Russia may offer assistance to China if it is asked, according to Vladimir Zabarov, first deputy chair of the International Committee. I find it interesting that it's in the context of if such help is requested. Based upon what we're seeing in terms of China surrounding the island of Taiwan with its navy and engaging in war games, your thoughts? Uh, I mean, this is a deft political move by the Russians, sort of a, not only a signal to the West, but sort of a backhanded slap on the Chinese, um, who have continued to show hesitancy in endorsing uh, the Russian actions against Ukraine uh, because of China's, um, you know, longtime, you know, a position that uh, sovereignty must be protected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what the Russians are saying is because Taiwan is China, we're not constrained by the same concerns if China were to undertake military action to 
and you know enforce its sovereignty over its own territory, hey, we're good with that. And if you ask us for assistance, we'll be prepared to give it. I think this is purely a political statement. But the other, the other thing that the guy said, and, it, and it's true, he said, you know, China might be able to take on Taiwan by itself. It won't be able to take on the United States by itself. And if China believes that the United States might intervene on behalf of Taiwan, it's going to need Russian help in order to, you know, to, to, to keep America at bay. And Russia's here ready to provide it if and when requested. We got about a minute. Here's what I think. I think that statement was a statement to the West. I think that was a statement to the U.S. saying, look, you don't want this fight. If you're going to fight, we, you know, because they know if China loses, they're coming after us. China knows if Russia loses, they're coming after us. And I think part of that was a message to the U.S. and its allies, too. One minute. Yeah, uh, neither Russia nor China uh, can afford to lose um, in, in this, this game of high-stakes um, geopolitical poker. Uh, but the, the good news for them is neither one of them are positioned to lose. They both have, they're both holding very strong hands. It's the United States and its allies, which, um, you know, have folded repeatedly. And frankly speaking, if they take a look at the cards they're holding right now, vis-a-vis Taiwan, they would fold again because it's a losing proposition to take on China over an issue about Chinese sovereignty. Uh, when China holds all the cards, including localized military supremacy, and the United States has nothing. We've been talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. He's a writer. He's an author and a regular on the show. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Iraqi and French foreign ministers are pushing fence-mending talks between Iran and Saudis. Also, warring parties in Yemen renew a two-month peace agreement. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Iraq and France have expressed their support for the talks in Baghdad between representatives from Iran and Saudi Arabia as part of a diplomatic process aimed at mending relations, calling for its continuation in order to ensure security and stability in the Middle East. And I think it's important, Laith, the context here is this came from Press TV, which is an Iranian news service. So let me throw one other thing in. Both Iran and Saudi Arabia both aspire to be members of the BRICS coalition with Russia and China. And I thought that the the powers involved in this would be working towards detente for the betterment of the organization. Anyway, let me throw all that at you. Latham Roof, your thoughts. I mean, definitely it's a, it's a huge news story. Uh, of course, Iraq is having its own problems in the past few days. Uh, the southern movement has been constantly uh, attempting to occupy the parliament or the green zone. Um, so to see the prime minister of Iraq 
taking his time to ne- try to negotiate a detente between Iran and uh, the Saudi regime is it means that you know this is one of the cruxes of the stability of Iraq itself let alone when we talk about of course a, a, the global uh, change that is that we are uh, witnessing of uh, the creation of a multipolar world uh, where, as you mentioned, clearly Saudi and uh, Iran want to be members of the BRICS. Of course, Iran has much uh, better luck in doing that because it's not only a economic, um, you know, a, a, a giant, but it's also a military giant. In the terms of France, I, uh, you know, this is where the question mark lies. We know what's Iraq's interest in this detente, but what is France playing here? Is it trying to? Uh, you know, emerge as as a new power in the Middle East as the United States withdraws. Those are all uh, questions up uh, yet for me, at least, uh, have not been answered. Two things, one of which we talked about when this meeting was first announced, and that is on July 23rd, Iraq will host a public meeting between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's the first point, the, the fact that it's a public meeting. And the next quote is, the Saudi crown prince asked us to host the meeting. So it sounds as though from the Iraqi side that the Saudis are the ones that are initiating this detente. And then third, how does all of this factor into Israel and the United States and their relationship with the Saudis? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that the Saudis are the ones who are in need of a detente with Iran. Iran doesn't uh, need anything from the Saudis. It has, um, you know, uh, relations with most countries in the region that are amicable. It has also a network of allies, including Syria, Lebanon and and Yemen, that are basically as uh, crucial to the to the future of uh, the Middle East uh, as as uh, Iran itself are. So when we see that the Saudis are the ones pushing for it, we know, of course, uh, this is in part because of the war in Yemen and the successes of the uh, Yemeni resistance. Um, we we should be, of course, talking later on in the show about about the situation in Yemen, but. I believe this is one of the uh, crucial reasons why the Saudis are um, trying to fast forward any negotiations with Iran to normalize relations. Um, this way it can at least uh, you know, have its uh, southern front safe in any situation where the Americans withdraw from the region completely to focus on Russia and China. You know, a couple of things, too, I think, to tie all this together, because now they are talking about a two-month truce. But... If Saudi Arabia and Iran stop their fracas or whatever you want to call it, it totally changes the dynamics in the region and it screws up the U.S.'s plan to, you know, have this anti-Iranian coalition. And also because a big part of the Yemen war is the U.S. wants to, you know, they're concerned that the Iranians control the Straits of Hormuz and you've got the Bab al-Mandab on the other side over there with, I believe, the Red Sea or wherever it is that's controlled by Yemen. They're concerned that the Iranians will have control on both sides. If Saudi Arabia can work out a deal with Iran, that worry goes away because Saudis can get their oil past Bab al-Mandab with no stress from Iran or the Yemeni. So at any rate, your thoughts on all of that, Lath? 
Yeah, I mean, of course, this uh, two months, uh, you know, extension of the uh, ceasefire between the Saudis and Yemen uh, is, of course, a great thing for the population of Yemen. Unfortunately, of course, many people in Yemen are right now wondering uh, what is Yemen itself going to get in return for this ceasefire. And it will be increasing, of course. Uh, the internal contradiction uh, of the resistance not being able to provide the basics uh, that the Yemeni population needs. So on the one hand, it may be a blessing, this this uh, ceasefire. On the other, it could be a curse for the Yemeni resistance. So we, we, you know, we have to wait to see how that uh, unfolds. Of course, in terms of the Saudis, uh, you know, having this ceasefire and at the same time, uh, negotiating with Iran a return to normal relations uh, will, uh, you know, guarantee the flow of uh, Saudi oil and gas to the West. Uh, and, you know, we also saw today, of course, the uh, OPEC uh, uh, increasing the the flow of uh, oil by only 100,000 barrels, which actually increased the price of oil. So we can see that the Saudis are playing multiple sides, uh, they are trying finally, after uh, you know, 100 years of being the you know house slaves of the the British and the Americans, are finally maybe starting to think uh, independently. I hope that these uh, markers are true. That this is not part of a a longer uh, you know process of delay that the West has been famous for in terms of uh, negotiations, uh, especially with the fact that the Saudis have just received a huge um, a huge shipment of uh, Patriot missiles uh, that have been approved by Biden. So this, you know, a ceasefire in Yemen could, if it's uh, in the worst case scenario, would mean just an increase of military capabilities of the Saudis. And in the best case scenario, of course, we will see an end of hostilities uh, fully. And you just touched on my next question. You mentioned detente and return to normal relations between Iran and the Saudis and the Saudis playing both sides. And, and now it's reported that the Biden administration yesterday approved two massive arms sales to the Saudis and to the UAE, more than $5 billion in missile defense. So what's the logic behind the purchase? Was that really a gift from Mohammed bin Salman to Joe Biden? Or is the description of this as being a move to defend the Saudis against Iran, is that really more for American domestic consumption? Yeah, I mean, you know, this deal was partially signed by Trump, that the arms were never delivered and the money wasn't paid. So to see, of course, Biden continuing on the policies of uh, Trump uh, just shows you that the United States has uh, a one-party system. Um, you know, uh, in terms of... The Saudis getting these defensive weapons, uh, I mean, the resistance in Yemen has to watch out. Uh, of course, uh, all the uh, drones and, and, and guided missiles that the resistance has in Yemen showed the inefficiency of uh, the Patriot missiles. So I have no idea really why the, the Saudis ended up uh, paying for this. Uh, I remember myself, you know, I, I lived in... Saudi in Riyadh uh, during the first Gulf War in 1990. And uh, I remember me and my uh, older brother, uh, when the, the Scud missiles would come from Iraq, would go up on top of the 
roof of the building to watch the fireworks. And uh, <laughs> even then, even then in 1990, you know, the Scud missile would be coming down and six Patriot missiles would shoot up. And because the, the Patriot missiles are actually designed to be anti-aircraft, not anti-missile, uh, and what they would do is heat seek. So one of the missiles may hit the back of the Scud missile. And as the Scud missile continues going down, the rest of the the volley of uh, Patriot missiles, the five of them, will follow it down to the ground and make more damage than it. So in general, the Patriot missile system is a failed system, and I don't know why the Saudis are paying for it, except because their masters are ordering to. to. I just figured out why Joe Biden approved the sale of these missiles, because he's keeping his campaign promise. This is how you make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. As he promised during the campaign, that's go ahead. That's that's how you make him a pariah. You sell him. You sell him missiles. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Whoever saw that coming? Mystery solved. Go ahead. Buddy. Exactly. Go ahead, There's another article. UN expert slams Israel's harassment of human rights defenders in the West Bank. Israel authorities hubris is proving without limits. They're even harassing human rights defenders and humanitarian workers seeking to support and protect people facing grave human rights violations in Masafar Yatta, the UN expert said. Your thoughts, Laith? I mean, this is uh, Masafar Yatta is, is living the... Uh, re-Nakba again and again. You know, originally when the Israelis occupied uh, in 1948 Palestine, they expelled a lot of Palestinians who became quote-unquote citizens of Israel from uh, their towns and declared those towns military zones uh, only to give them to colonists to occupy them after. And this is what the Israelis are trying to do here in um, Safariyata. They're trying to clear the area, claiming that it's a um, firing zone for training of the Israeli military. And of course, after the people are expelled from there, then settlers will come and take over the area. And, and in this situation, as we see, there's a lot of international human rights uh, workers that are on the ground getting beaten and arrested daily uh, as the Israelis continue to uh, try to ethnically cleanse the, the region uh, from the Palestinian indigenous population. You know, this is, reminds me of something funny. I just saw a video, you know, uh, the, the Israelis after they arrested yesterday, one of the Islamic Jihad uh, leaders in Jenin have been freaking out and have put all the uh, settlements on uh, across from Gaza on high alert. Everybody's uh, in their bunkers and such. And uh, there was uh, a sound of something like firing on the beaches of Tel Aviv. Uh, and the uh, Israeli police arrested two Emiratis, beat the hell out of them, thinking that they're Palestinians that uh, made a, sh a shooting. And of course, there was no shooting and there was no Palestinians there. But the humiliation of the Emiratis that have normalized with this vicious <laughs> colonial state was, uh, was gold. Wow. Just quickly, Taliban facing backlash after U.S. drone strike. Could you talk about, they say that just as the Taliban was preparing to celebrate its first year in power, the attack that wound up allegedly killing Ayman Zahariri is causing the Taliban a lot of problem. And they also say they have yet to really identify through DNA that he was killed. Can, can you speak to that? Yes, of course, uh, you know, the, the brine of the Taliban started with that uh, nasty drone strike that killed uh, civilians uh, as the U.S. was withdrawing. And now, a year later, 
we hear this uh, illegal drone attack on on Afghani territory that with the claim that Ayman al-Zawahiri, the, the uh, leader of al-Qaeda, was assassinated in this uh, shun. So, of course, uh, the Taliban government is now having to answer to its population because since their arrival, their biggest promise is to bring security to the country. And as we see, they continue to be not able to stop the Americans from violating their airspace or conducting uh, extrajudicial assassinations uh, on the grounds of Afghanistan. So the pressure is on now on the Afghani uh, government. Uh, they have to figure out a relationship with their neighbors, including Pakistan and Iran, to end the Saudi, uh, the, sorry, the, <laughs> I said Saudi, but the American violations of Afghani airspace. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You can find him on Twitter. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Russia has accused the U.S. of direct involvement in the Ukraine conflict. Also, a Russian politician says that Russia will aid China in any conflict with the U.S. Joining us to discuss this, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Tass. Russian news agency reports Russia has no grounds to refuse to help China in case of an armed conflict in Taiwan. Vladimir Zhabarov, first deputy chairman of the International Committee of Russia's Federation Council or Upper Parliament House, said your thoughts, Mark Sloboda. Yeah. OK, so this is coming from a Russian senator uh, who is the deputy chairman of the International Committee the of Russia's Federation Council, the equivalent of the U.S. Senate. And uh, the statements he, he made are that Russia has no grounds to, de- to deny help to China if they asked in case of an armed conflict in, in Taiwan. And Russia has long been hinting at this. Um, uh, obviously, Russia cannot provide a whole lot of direct assistance, being as the majority of the conflict would be in the southern West Pacific, but they could certainly uh, provide uh, satellite information. Uh, They might very well have submarines in the area who could participate in hostilities. Uh, Russia has a a fairly substantial submarine force, while its uh, surface navy is a little bit lacking, particularly in the Pacific. Um, but, um, you know, supplies, energy, um, you know, these are the normal sort of things. And indeed, the Russian-Chinese strategic partnership, the regular routine uh, army drills, uh, navy drills, air force drills, strategic joint strategic defense drills uh, every year now. So uh, quite obviously, the Russian and Chinese are working on the interoperability of their forces. And there is the potential that Russia could participate. However, they also he also went on to say that Russia would like to see a little bit of reciprocation in 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 that situation if it asked for help. 
Um, you know, and uh, he went on to say something that I agree with completely. That um, l- let me rephrase what he said: that the big winner of the U.S.-Chinese standoff uh, over Pelosi's provocation in Taiwan will be the Russian-Chinese strategic alliance, right? That is what will benefit the most out of this, because it will continue to push China closer to Russia, just as the Ukraine uh, crisis, the West uh, arming the Kiev regime, funding it, you know, basically using them as complete proxies in warfare, uh, keeps pushing Russia closer to China. And it is amazing, no matter how many of the West's top experts and analysts say, well, this probably isn't a good idea to keep antagonizing them both at the same time, they continue doing just that. And as a proponent of said uh, Russian-Chinese alliance, I say, I quite seriously thank you. Understanding that China has said those who play with fire will be burned by it, and stating that they will respond to the provocation of Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, but not being specific in what that response will be. As Zabarov says, if such help is requested, does that signal anything to you? And the timing of such statement, does that signal anything to you? Well, of course, again, there is uh, a limited amount of help that Russia could provide if China felt the need uh, to need it, uh, if they needed it in any potential um, conflict. Um, I, I think... Chinese level of rhetoric going into this incident was quite high. This comment directly from the Chinese president, those who play with fire will be burnt. And then the People's Liberation Army comments, comments coming from them, or they will not sit idly by uh, while uh, uh, Pelosi, the U.S. Speaker of the House, violates uh, China's sovereignty. And they were not specific, but particularly that statement coming from the People's Liberation Army and suggestions coming out of uh, Chinese state media seem to suggest there might be something kinetic, warning shots fired, an attempt to escort her plane uh, as, a, as a type of humiliation. And that didn't happen. Um, uh, a Pelosi uh, landed uh, and left uninterrupted uh, and unharassed uh, in her flight. Um, So there are definitely those in the West who very are loudly trumpeting that this is a sign of Chinese weakness, uh, that they did not respond militarily, as the U.S. almost certainly would have responded in a like situation. Let's say a Chinese, uh, a high-ranking Chinese government official was flying into a Navajo reservation and supplying them (laughs) with weapons, or attending meetings of a uh, California independence movement and promising to arm them and support their struggle for freedom. when you put that shoe on the other foot, I, I think you can see how restrained China was. And ultimately, 
there is the argument that China is playing the long game, that they know that time is in their favor as their economic power relative to the U.S. increases, their military strength will increase accordingly and vice versa, that the U.S.'s military strength will, will in relative terms decrease. And I think the U.S. sees a five to ten year window closer to the five year window of, of action. Of, of what they view as an inevitable naval conflict to, to contain China in uh, the Taiwanese Straits uh, and or the uh, South China Sea. Uh, meanwhile, China is looking at a 10 to 15 year window where they would feel comfortable saying that they could fully militarily reclaim sovereignty over Taiwan if necessary uh, without fearing uh, yeah, you know, a, a U.S. military response. Uh, but what we have seen repeatedly with with Pelosi's visit here, Lithuania uh, pushing to open uh, um, uh, opening a representative office, essentially on behalf of the U.S. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, one short step of a, of a full diplomatic uh, embassy. Um, and U.S. military marines on the ground in Taiwan training Taiwanese separatist troops, um, all of this speaks of salami slicing tactics, of slowly pushing China further and further towards a, a state of um, de facto independence for Taiwan, while doing it in these small incremental steps, allows them to paint any Chinese response to those steps as overblown and disproportionate. Um, the U.S. is very good at that, and it works up until it won't. The other thing, Mark, I think that you have to take into consideration, because, you know, a lot of people are looking at this as like this happened and what happened instantly. Uh, if I'm China, I'm watching the Ukraine situation, too. And one of the things that's critical is the U.S.'s coalition, its backers, its supporters in the EU. And I'm looking at that coalition weakening and I'm looking at the, you know, they're starting to kind of back off some of the sanctions. They're starting to really feel economic pain. And I'm looking at them saying the closer we get to the winter, the more this coalition is going to be in big trouble. And it's going to be harder for the U.S. to hold these hardline positions on China or Russia or anywhere else when people are huddled together like puppies, literally freezing to death by by the millions in Northern Europe. Your thoughts? Yeah, there is a bit of that, particularly in economic terms. But um, I don't think that, that any future conflict would, of course, be naval and air. And with the exception of the United Kingdom, which isn't technically part of the EU anymore, I don't think China really feels the long arm of EU naval power projection because it really doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, to be to be frank, uh, what I think China might be more focused on is seeing the response of South Korea, Japan, and Australia, those powers uh, in the Pacific, within the theater that the U.S. would call on, and looking for division there. And certainly Japan has not been, has participated in U.S. sanctions, but refused to apply it to energy. And, uh, you know, South Korea voices a lot of support, but I can tell you that Samsung electronic uh, products from Korea are still, you know, <laughs> well for sale in Moscow, you know, 
at at uh, you know uh, very uh, only you know normal inflationary rates. Uh, so uh, their participation is limited as well. And I think that China may, might be more focused on those U.S. allies and their response to the uh, Ukraine crisis uh, as the U.S. is is trying to herd them like cats uh, to follow its dictates. Al Jazeera reports Russia accuses U.S. of direct involvement in the Ukraine war. Moscow said it is responding to comments by Ukraine's deputy head of military intelligence about the way Kyiv has used U.S.-supplied HIMARS rockets. Your thoughts, is Russia laying a broader predicate for direct conflict? Um, I don't think that Russia wants direct conflict with the United States, but they are essentially warning the United States that, you know, that, that, that they're at that red line and that anything uh, further risks direct conflict, uh, yeah, you know, uh, breaking out kinetic actions uh, directly against each other. Of course, the, the United States knows this. And actually, we've long known that the U.S. was uh, involved in this. I mean, we've had reports from the CIA that uh, from uh, the Washington Post, sorry, that the CIA and Western commandos were on the ground um, directing weapons into the hand of their uh, proxies in the Kiev regime forces and providing them with, uh, you know, um, uh, real time downloaded satellite info on uh, military, U.S. military tablets where um, they are basically telling them which targets to hit, how to hit them, and where to hit them. Uh, so I, I, I think this is only further confirmation of what Russia has already known and, uh, you know, U.S. government officials have, for whatever reason, purposefully already linked to uh, the Washington Post. I do not think it bodes well. I think that there is almost always a mission creep, and if right now they're directing attacks, I think it's uh, it, we have the real potential uh, for uh, U.S. and Poland to eventually become directly involved with troops on the ground in this conflict, perhaps in western Ukraine. Now, let me take a little different perspective, and I'll throw this at you, Mark. What if, and here's the other side, I see Russia winning. I see right now they're on a downhill, particularly once they take Ukraine, then it's, you know, Katie bar the door to where if they want to just, you know, make a bound for the Dnieper River. And, and we could go on and on about that. But here's my point. If I'm Russia, I say, yep, the United States was in there and France and the UK. They all came together and we beat them all. I use that as bragging rights. I look at it and say, you know what? They're in there. They always been in there. I've been winning and I'm going to keep winning. So I don't need to confront the U.S. anytime soon or anything like that. But I can have bragging rights to say, yep, they were in there and we beat them. They put all their guys in there and we beat them all anyway. And then I walk away. You understand what I'm saying, Mark? Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's definitely something to that. And the West, you know, NATO have done it to themselves. How many Western leaders have we heard say that Ukraine must win, that no peace terms would be acceptable to them 
if they were not on Russia's term or if they were on Russia's terms and not terms favorable to Kiev, basically dictating to Kiev that what type of peace would be acceptable, they would allow uh, Zelensky to make with Russia. Um, and uh, you know, Russia is certainly playing it up for domestic value um, that they are in a proxy war. Uh, with one implausible uh, thin degree of remove between them and NATO. And yes, they, they are winning, uh, slowly, at their own pace, methodically grinding, but winning, I think, uh, almost uh, indisputably all the same. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think there's a uh, bragging rights. You know, we beat them and everybody that was dear to them. Send more. We'll beat them, too. You know, that's the the tough guy on the street kind of talking. You walk away with those bragging rights. Russia also can say the same, uh, you know, maybe to a somewhat lesser degree in Syria and Georgia as well. And the U.S. is really upset about the damage to their prestige and credibility um, to lose to Russia in a proxy conflict for a third time in a row. We've been talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Australian journalist Andrew Fowler argues that the persecution of Julian Assange is a symptom of a declining empire. Also, some U.S. politicians are pushing legislation that would protect journalists from espionage violation accusations. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. The World Socialist website interviewed well-known Australian journalist Andrew Fowler this week on the continuing persecution of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange, who faces extradition to the U.S. and life imprisonment there for exposing American war crimes in Iraq. Fowler has argued that the persecution of Julian Assange is a, quote, symptom of a declining empire. What say you, Jim Cavanaugh? Well, I say, first of all, thank you for keeping focus on this. You know, it's been very easy to for this to get lost in the deluge of nonsense that's going on in the world. And uh, it's good that there are outlets that are, that are talking about it again. And I'm pleased to talk about it. I wrote two articles about it. And I helped to set up the New York City Free Assange group. And, you know, it, it's one of the most disgraceful things that's happening in the world with all the disgraceful things that are, that are happening. This has been going on for years. This was a good uh, interview with Fowler, who made some excellent points, you know, and uh, this is just an outrageous uh, attack on press freedom and freedom of the press. You know, uh, everybody has to be aware of how crazy and outrageous it is. This is the United States uh, indicting a foreign citizen who never worked in the United States in a third country and demanding that that third country extradite him here for publishing two information about the United States. It would be as if China, you know, went to Italy and said, you have to arrest this journalist who's in your country because he published two things about Chinese military operations 
and therefore, uh, you know, violated our espionage act, and we're gonna, you have to send them to us. This is not. This will end investigative reporting throughout the world, and the lengths that have been gone to, as Fowler points out in this in this interview, the lengths that have been gone to by the United States and Britain to keep this going have been outrageous. And he focuses quite rightly on the Swedish rape allegation, which was never a charge. Julian Assange was never a criminal charge, was never brought against Julian Assange in Sweden. There was a preliminary inquiry that lasted for nine years because the Americans and the British browbeat the Swedes to keep it going. They, 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 they quote, Fowler quotes the uh, infamous uh, British memo, which is now public to the Swedish uh, prosecutors saying, don't get cold feet on this. And, uh, you know, this went on for, for nine years, and that was that kept, that was deliberately done once it's, people forget, when there was a first indictment against Julian Assange, which wasn't under the Espionage Act and was kind of a limited indictment. And the, the New York Times and the Washington Post actually congratulated the Trump administration for that indictment, saying, well, this doesn't, this doesn't really, you know, attack freedom of the press. Then, when a subsequent indictment came out, which is 175 years under the Espionage Act, they, they lost that fake, that line that this really wasn't, everybody had to recognize this is really an attack on freedom of the press. Then they immediately jumped in, the British press immediately jumped in, the Guardian, yeah, 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 but they said they that rape charge in Sweden, we've got to send them to Sweden. And that became the, the alternative way of diverting from the fact that uh, this was just a method of uh, onward extradition to the United States. They never said, the liberals in Britain never said, oh, they said you have to extradite them to Sweden. If the Swedes asked for it, they hadn't asked for it. <laughs> but they never demanded that if, the, if you extradite it to Sweden, it's under the condition of no onward, onward extradition to the United States, which is possible under British law. Anyway, it's been a 10-year uh, attack on this guy, and it's all about crushing freedom of the press and crushing the ability of investigative journalists around the world, American or not, to report true information about American crimes. You know, in this piece, they write, the continuing pseudo-legal extradition process is proceeding at full steam, despite the fact that the U.S. campaign against Assange has been exposed as a dirty tricks operation. And one would think, and I'm focusing on the dirty tricks operation, one would think that after the release of the Pentagon Papers and after Watergate and with the creation of social media, that there would be an expansion in investigative journalism and that there would be an expansion of free press. But we now really find that that's just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about Assange is that he put to shame the so-called investigative journalists in the in the mainstream media, you know, th there was a lot of the whole generation that was brought up on, you know, the Woodward Bernstein and the, the independence and fighting spirit of the free press. And what Julian Assange did was he took the new technology of the Internet and he turned it into a tool for precisely that. And he did it very effectively. And it's that that they're trying to, and that they can't stand. They're trying, to, they're trying to crush it. They're trying to crush it with the attack on the sun. They're trying to crush it by censorship of of media. I see you just got blocked on Twitter again, Garland. Yes, again. <laughs> and either two or three for me, uh, three or four for you. So you know, this is all about you know trying to prevent the the, the, the liberatory use of the technology of the internet and of 
of the research that you can do and of the publication that you can do that, that the Internet makes, makes possible and that Julian Assange used to the, to the way it should be used. And uh, they're trying to prevent that. And this is a serious punishment, as I say. You know, they can do this with Julian Assange. Uh, they can do it. The Chinese, in principle, the Chinese can do it <laughs> with anybody in the world, any journalist in the world, any government can do it with any journalist in the world. And, you know, as you say, when you talk about the pseudo-legal thing, I mean, what Fowler is talking about, now we also know, I mean, how can the British courts go through it? We know that they spied on Assange and his lawyers. They were, the American CIA was paying security company to film and spy on Assange's uh, uh, the conversations with his lawyers. I mean, that'd be thrown out of any court in the country, in the United States, but they're getting away with it because they're ignoring it. And so it's, it's very difficult. And it, it, it's a disgrace that we're still doing this, that he has been and still is. And, you know, they're killing him in jail. They, they're, gonna, they're killing him slowly and not softly in, in, uh, in, in Belmarsh, a high-security prison. And uh, they hope he dies in jail. I mean, this is an embarrassment. Embar- and while the, what the, the, the Washington Post did the movie about uh, Daniel Ellsberg, two years ago, right? And they congratulated themselves, all the liberals, on, for supporting Daniel Ellsberg, who will tell you what to do about uh, Julian Assange, which is free him because he's doing nothing different than Ellsberg did. In fact, Ellsberg leaked the papers. Assange didn't leak anything. Assange just published information he got from someone who had gathered that information with their own uh, uh, access, legitimate access to, to, to computers and had not done it on, before Assange had done it before she even talked to Assange, first tried to give it to the Times and the, and the Post. So it's, a, it's really a, 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 he's a, a publisher of true information. He wasn't a leaker, he was a hacker, and uh, he, all he did was publish true information just as the Times did and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe and the Guardian who all published the information he gave them, that Chelsea Manning gave him and them. You know, here's the crux of the article, and I want to get your thoughts on this. The bullying legal overreach of Assange by the U.S. is a symptom not of strength, but the weakness of a declining empire given to hubris and monumental errors of judgment. Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, this was a, this was a first shot in, that, in, in what can be considered something that's being done out of fear. And as I said— what this was 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 fear of the power of that's still going on. It was a shot against the power of things like the internet and things like being able to publish independently and being able to, to do research independently and not depending on corporate organizations or on governmental uh, authority or governmental permission. Okay, so this is the the, the uh, persecution of Assange is really an attack against a rising power that exists among. Everybody, <laughs> and and this was a, 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 a early version of aggression, which is based on it's a defensive aggression. It's based on defensive aggressiveness. I know that this represents something that's going to be used against me, and and I, it's kind of hard for me to figure out how to stop this being used against me, how to stop the Chinese or the Russian uh, or or the, or the global South from rising in importance, how to stop people independent journalists from doing uh, independent investigative journalism. So we have to, you have to go on the attack in a way that's quite outrageous and obvious. There's a piece in the Orinoco Tribune, it's an interview with John Pilger, 
And Pilger says, today, the U.S. knows it's close to getting its hands on Assange. In spite of a tenacious campaign in London, there's not a single voice speaking up for him in Parliament. And there's a tenacious campaign emphasizing the threat that he poses to a free press, but it's barely acknowledged in the media. So not only is there a blackout here in the United States, there's a similar blackout in Britain as well. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, Corbynites and Jerry Cor- Jeremy Corbyn himself were, were, were good on Assange. Well, they started to go, they started to get intimidated by, this, by the so-called sex charge. But uh, now you have the Labour Party completely taken over by the Starmer people, and it's, you know, they don't mention it. It's disgraceful. I mean, that, that, you know, Britain is the terrain under which the last couple of years this battle has been fought. And as I say, you know, British courts have had to go to the extraordinary lengths and bend over backwards to pretend that there's nothing significant about the fact that the Assange was spied on by the CIA. They wanted, they, they floated ideas of assassinating him. This is clearly a political persecution, prosecution, which should not be extradited. There's no no argument that it isn't. And they've had to pretend that all that is unimportant. And British politicians and media, you know, now that they've chased the Corbynites and anything left of Thatcher, which is what Starmer represents, this is Labourite Thatcherism uh, out of political life. uh, You know, uh, there's nobody mentioning Assange. And even, you know, we have that article that you also sent, which was the American legislators, the two Democrats, uh, uh, Ro Khanna and uh, forget the other one. And, 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 and Massey and Thomas Massey, the, the Republican is another Democrat, uh, you know, saying, you know, putting a new legis- putting new legislation in to protect journalists from the Espionage Act. That's a good thing. But are they coming out? Is, is Ro Khanna? And, and the progressive Democrats, are they speaking about no. Assange? No. And saying, we got to stop this. Are they going to the Biden administration saying, this is outrageous. Drop these charges. Stop the appeal for the, for the, for the extradition. No, they're not. No, they're waiting for instructions from Mama Bear there, Jim Kavanaugh. I think that's, <laughs> that's the problem. And Mama Bear is in Taiwan trying to start World War III. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> Yes, Mama Bear is at the lair of the dragon. At any rate, we've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A former German chancellor is arguing that his country should activate the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Also, the EU suffers with cold showers and lack of lights as the darth of Russian energy takes its toll. Joining us to discuss this, we have Professor Nikolai Petro. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia. Professor Petro, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be back. I just spent uh, the last six weeks in Europe, so uh, 
I didn't have to take cold showers, though. Well, we're glad to hear that and glad to hear that you got back safely. (laughs) Former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder has offered, quote, the simplest solution, unquote, to Europe's current energy crisis to switch on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. You know, Professor Petro, a couple of quick things. He went to Moscow to talk, I believe, maybe negotiate. Being that he is a former chancellor, would I be or would we be wrong to assume that he is, shall we say, an official slash unofficial envoy from Germany? I don't think so. Uh, The current government, uh, which is led by a coalition of his party, has taken a very different stance from his. And as a matter of fact, um, has supported uh, his exclusion, the, the former uh, political leaders of uh, his stature uh, typically have some perks that come uh, in retirement, such as access to government offices. And they've actually uh, done their best to uh, remove these from him. So he's pretty much on his own right now. It's interesting that, again, former Chancellor Schroeder says the simplest solution would be to put the Nord Stream 2 pipeline into operation. If things get really tight, there is this pipeline, and with both Nord Stream pipelines, there would be no supply problem. Well, that's an incredible statement of the obvious, but sometimes the simplest solution can be the most difficult to implement. Because just by turning on that valve and allowing that gas to flow, that undercuts what I believe to be the real fundamental premise of the American position here, which is to take control of the international energy market. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, I would say we should be clear about why there is an energy crisis, why there is an economic crisis. Uh, downturn in the West right now. Um, Say what you will about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I, along with others, see that invasion as uh, illegal. But uh, that is one circumstance, uh, and there are uh, policies uh, associated with punishing Russia for that. But The sanctions, or I should say the economic downturn and the energy crisis, are not the result of Russia's actions. They are the result of the West's response to those actions. Uh, No one forced us to cut ourselves off from Russian energy resources. We did that all on our own. And uh, what happens, what is happening uh, for Russia is that as a result, they are diversifying their markets and exporting much more than they ever did before, uh, eastward and southward to India and uh, opening up new markets for themselves uh, in Africa and in Iran. And so uh, diversity, diversification of energy resources actually goes both ways. Uh, Russia used to be uh, 80% dependent for its sales on Europe. And this gave Europe a certain leverage. But uh, when they try to take advantage of it to condition Russia's politics, of course, Russia says uh, that's not going to happen, and we're going to start diversifying in response.
you know, I hate to beat a dead horse, but something else I want to throw back, Gerhard Schroeder. And that is, you know, I tend to, when I think about politics, if I think about Hillary Clinton, I think, okay, there's a faction within the Democratic Party that you can call the Clinton faction. If she does this, she's kind of representing that faction. You know, Trump has a faction within the Republican Party. He's he's representing that faction. And I tend to think, for instance, in Germany, there is a dissenting faction. We see the industrialist and the trade unionists continually pushing back, saying, hey, this is not going to work for us. So I tend to think that Schrader, when he goes to Moscow trying to work something out to make a deal, when he comes back and he says, hey, perhaps we should turn the Nord Stream pipeline back on, I tend to believe that there is some powerful political slash economic faction that he is representing that it's not just out of the blue. It may not be the government, but it may be the industrialists, the trade unionists, some dissenting voices looking and might let me add one other thing and looking out ahead saying, I know come winter, come colder weather, people are going to be hitting the ceiling. I'm going to be ahead of that saying I told you so and maybe even creating some level of political cover for people who want to backtrack. I know that's a lot, but what do you think? Hmm. No, you're right. There is a counter argument. Um, he is in an awkward he, – he makes that argument, Schroeder sure does, but he's in an awkward position to do so because he has been effectively tarnished because of his uh, financial connections with the Russian gas uh, and oil giant, I should say, Rosneft. Mm-hmm. So um, that has put him in a difficult position to argue uh, based for, for a specific policy based on his previous credentials. The person uh, who now represents that alternative vision of saying, let's be pragmatic here and not shoot ourselves in the foot uh, when, in fact, our, our sanctions are not accomplishing what we'd hoped they would accomplish, and we might have to, to uh, step down the ladder from that uh, for escalating sanctions in the future, is the East German uh, local regional governor, uh, Kretschmer. Um, He uh, is, I would say, at the forefront of a group of, uh, as you point out, industrialists, energy tycoon, well, people who are interested in energy, energy tycoons, trade unions who are concerned about uh, living standards. And uh, there is in... in, uh, uh, Overall, I would say, a more sympathetic uh, view of Russia in uh, eastern Germany than there is in western Germany. But I don't hold up very much hope for Schroeder being that conduit himself, because um, he's been very effectively discredited by the mainstream uh, German media. AP has a story, and this reflects upon your time you just mentioned spending in Europe. Cold showers, no lights, Europe saves as Russian gas wanes. Fanning out like urban gorillas through Paris's darkened streets well after midnight, the anti-waste activists shinny up walls and drain pipes, reaching for switches to turn off the lights. And they say that this is one small but symbolic step in a giant leap of energy saving that Europe is trying to make as it rushes to wean itself off of natural gas and oil from Russia so that factories aren't forced to close. Uh, Talk about your experience. Yeah, well, that's not going to (laughs) happen. 
So, I mean, you don't, you don't, uh, the, the energy consumption of a factory is by many order of magnitudes more than, <laughs> right. than, than the light switch that I can turn on and off, even a thousand light, light switches. Like, like the author coyly says, this is symbolic. This is pure symbolism. And um, uh, the political impact uh, will be is yet to be seen. We will see it in in the dark of winter. Uh, that's when. Oh, oh no, we'll actually see it before that. Um, so my mother lives in Germany. We visited her. Her electric bill is going up. My electric bill here in Rhode Island is going to double uh, in the next month. Uh, that's give it a month or two, and uh, we'll begin to see some real questions asked of our political leaders as to why this is happening. And again, uh, if we're honest about it, uh, we have to recognize that no one forced us to take to initiate sanctions that hurt us more than they do Russia. We did that all to ourselves. Uh, let me ask you this, since you just came back from Europe, one of the things that, you know, we had Scott Ritter on right after this thing first started, when the sanctions first kicked in, and he said, none of these governments are going to survive. He said, they're all going to drop. There's no way in the world they can take the actions they can. He said, within the next year, they'll all fall. We've seen Draghi walk away when Draghi didn't have to walk away in Italy, but I suspect yeah. Draghi yeah. has had a fairly strong career and looking at what's coming, he said, I don't want to be blamed with, I don't want to be blamed with this. Just to guess, we see what's happening in UK. Your thoughts on the idea? I don't think Schultz, his numbers are are not good. Orban looks like Mr. Practicality. So your thoughts on that? Well, they're calling it Zelensky's disease. (laughs) It's any association with Zelensky. uh, Zelensky pox. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's a certain lack of realism in some of the European commentary because they think this can affect uh, Joe Biden and force him into some sort of, uh, you know, withdrawal from political office. We don't have that kind of parliamentary system. We're, we're stuck with the presidents we have uh, for as, as long as they survive uh, in political office. So, uh, but there will probably be consequences in the American uh, midterm elections. We'll have to see. Um, for the United States, though, this is still, I think, a fairly remote and emotional issue. Uh, we, I, I don't see a lot of uh, political commentators in the U.S. making the direct connection that uh, seems obvious to me between our economic downturn and the economic policies of isolation uh, that we are pursuing with respect to one of the world's largest economies, and the uh, most indispensable economy to the West, to the West in terms of energy resources. Again, if there's anything we need to rebound, it's not high tech; it is raw materials, and and we're just simply dependent on Russia for those, and we will be for years to come. As we move closer to the midterms, as you just indicated, and looking at the uh, political impact here, are we going to hear again the rhetoric of this is Putin's price hike? No doubt. But the falseness of that narrative should be obvious. You you know, when we were in grade school, my mother would say, 
okay, you know, why did you follow so-and-so and do something stupid? Uh, well, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Well, if so-and-so had jumped over a cliff, would you jump <laughs> right. over too? And you go, no, obviously not. Well, here we are going, well, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Let's jump over a cliff. When we haven't, apparently, we have very intelligent people who can't think through the consequences of their actions or can't anticipate them. You know, the first week uh, we were all gung-ho about the collapse of the ruble, then the ruble recovered and stronger than ever. We were saying how these uh, restrictions on energy consumption Energy purchases, I say, would go into effect. And then we learned that Germany hiked its energy uh, purchases and spent more, uh, gave more money to Russia than at any point in the last several years after the invasion. So uh, it's it's just a charade, and and we really should have journalists who uh, go through these numbers a little more carefully and point this out. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Professor Nikolai Petro. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope that you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 